It's wonderful to be with you. I want to remind you that uh, we're dealing with this the best that we can in worship. And the reminder that's so important for us to understand is that our connection in Christ is an absolute connection, a spiritual connection, not dependent upon proximity with each other. It's kind of nice to have the technology to be able to actually hear and uh, listen to each other and uh, to enjoy this incredible music. But we are together. We're together because we're all one in Christ. Now, these are amazing lessons today, and so I want to get to it like this. First, with the confidence that I know, that you know, that there is so much that is beautiful about life. You know the beauty of it. The times of pleasant relationship with family, friends, and all you love, those amazing bonds that we have, the times of communing with nature, seeing beauty beyond description, the times of inner serenity, free from anxiety, full of peace, there probably have been for you these beautiful encounters within your life. For these awarenesses, we can almost hear uh, Louis Armstrong singing that amazing lilting song, What a Wonderful World. When you hear that song, it not only moves you just because it's designed to do so, but it's also because you have within you your own experience of what a wonderful world it is. Your perceptions are right there to come along with the song. I speak of this first to reinforce the reality of these moments and feelings before speaking to the other side of life. I want us to lay the foundation of unity, harmony, and its reality before I speak of the disharmony and its reality for every child of earth. By degree, we all experience that as well. Some not as much, some way too much, but we all experience disunity. When we consider a soul at the very lowest of her experience, when we think of an individual at the bluest of his experiences, we can almost hear Odetta, who recorded at Carnegie Hall in 1963, plucking her guitar, Odetta Holmes, and singing the hauntingly mournful, Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. So we get these both, both of these experiences of life. For an, a personal example of one of the wonderful moments of life, something come up, came up on my Facebook page about an eight years ago experience, a time in Wales. I was on sabbatical, and I made a pilgrimage and uh, to uh, St. David's Cathedral on the very southwest edge, the coastal uh, edge of uh, Wales overlooking the Celtic Sea. On the other side, Ireland. 
too misty that day to see any land over there. But the cathedral was gorgeous, and there were a hundred things that I could name right now, which I won't, that were powerful to me, life-changing to me, in that two-day pilgrimage to a place I wanted to see. And one of them was uh, going a half a mile from my bed and breakfast past the cathedral and on to the coastal trail, a huge trail that hikers love to do, hundreds of miles if you do the whole thing. But there I was on a cliff, and 30 feet below me was this Irish Sea. And the waves were crashing on the rocks, and some of those rocks had like a hole in them because of the, uh, of the splendid kind of erosion that just made an incredible rock formation there. But I could see those waves crashing, and at that distance, it almost looks like the waves are splashing against the rocks in slow motion. And to see, of course, the birds. And to be on that grassy top of the cliff. And to imagine that it's always been this way with this noise. Well, that was a moment for me. I was glad to be there. That was a moment in nature that was moving to me. It, it blessed me. It was pleasurable. And it was also awesome and made me feel incredibly small. I had a shrinking feeling in that beautiful and happy two hours that I spent just walking about on the trail and noticing what I could notice. What a wonderful world. And uh, all of us can build a list, can paint a portrait, a multifaceted portrait of the worst matters of the current world. And I'm not going to belabor this for two reasons. One, because I know you already know the suffering of the world, that you've noticed it, and you've thought about it, and you've, you've, you've worried about it, but also because it's the Lord's day, and it's hard to just stay with this, but I think we must go to these places. Let me just list four issues that, that, that make us, that give us pause, that make us want to have solutions for the world. You could quickly quadruple this list. I mean quickly. Consider nations oppressing their own people. Nations harshly occupying other nations. Turning the lives of, of those who, who love their land inside out. Systems of wealth and influence intentionally allowing the starvation of the helpless. People exploiting others, their heartless greed, dead to acknowledging the humanity and dignity of other people. Treating others as a, a means to selfish ends 
rather than as ends in themselves. And the Christian approach to meeting uh, this kind of suffering, this misery in the world, I'd like to take the approach uh, today to turn to Jesus. In Jesus, what we have, many ways to explain, but this simple way, we have an example in Jesus, an example of how to treat other people. And it is ours to discover that way of life, that way of treatment, so that we can emulate in our own lives. Jesus then becomes a model for us. The, the, the way shower to us so that we can decide by our own will to uh, be a certain way and to treat people in a certain way. Every time. We're not perfect at this. But we know how to work at things and become better at this. So Jesus is, for one thing, an example to us, a way shower. Jesus is something else, isn't he? Jesus is a sacrifice for sin. To accomplish in us that which we cannot accomplish for ourselves. In fact, to cleanse us which we cannot do for ourselves. And so Jesus, by showing us the way and also by transforming our very spirits with his Holy Spirit, can move us into a place where we are operating in a different way in the world. And we can't solve all those lists of things that we want to be different about the world but we can make a difference where we live in the here and now, and we can look for ways of expanding that effect and that influence in the world the best way that we can. I remember in seminary, you know, in seminary it's funny, a book can be on a table, and for a seminarian, the book has to be their own possession. So, you know, it's a bad thing to go into uh, the bookstore. And maybe you're still that way, come to think of it. <laughs> maybe you don't have to be a seminarian to be like that. But I remember picking up and purchasing a book by the European uh, theologian Jürgen Moltmann. It was called The Crucified God. And in it, one of the introductory chapters, he talks about how difficult it is to decide how to meet the world and how to affect the world and how to be a presence of Christ in the world. And he says that we fall into two traps of extremes. Sometimes we think that what we need to do is to uh, become a transformer of society, to operate in the systems in the world, to try to change the world by changing its, its systems. And he said the difficulty of this when pushed to the extreme is that we become kind of a uh, uh, a, uh, uh, a Marxist idealist. And he says, some people say, well, we'll change the individual and the systems will change. If you 
witness and convert each person, then the world will be a different place. One is change the structures. This one, this idea is change the individual souls. But in that, you be, can become a, uh, well, call, call it a, an idealist of a, of a spiritual sort, kind of a pietism extreme. And his final solution is that we have to do both. We have to change the individuals. God does it. Not us. But we can be witnesses to the change that can happen within each person. We also have to seek and look for ways to change the systems where they are unfair. And not to promote unfairness, but instead to work the other direction toward justice for all. We have to do both at the same time. Change the structure. Change the heart. That is our work. We have a difficult uh, day, scripturally speaking. We have a, a hard scene uh, when uh, the disciples are walking with Jesus and they run across a Canaanite woman who's shouting after them. Why? Because she so loves her daughter. And her daughter is tormented by these demons. And she knows that Jesus can help. And so, yes, she begins to torment the disciples. And their response is, tell this Canaanite woman to make her request somewhere else. It's very annoying to us. And I don't know why Jesus does this. Some have said just because Jesus is a product of his own culture of ideas. But I think there was something else here. Because Jesus had not pushed the point of who was who in the crowd of those who needed to be healed before. He hadn't had them step up for registration to see that they were the right kind of person to be getting healed. So I don't think he was holding that attitude here, but he reinforces the potential for lesson in this scene when he says, yes, interestingly, let me, let me tell you that it is for the uh, children of Israel that the Son of Man has come. And she said, but even the master drops crumbs and scraps for the dog at the foot of the table. And Jesus says, your faith is great. Your faith is amazing. Go and you will find your daughter healed. And so we have this ugly picture of people sizing up other people. We don't know if the disciples were annoyed just because of the request, because she was a woman who wouldn't leave them alone, because she was a Canaanite. We don't know if it was religious prejudice, but they weren't interested in her. And Jesus, in the end of it, says that God is interested in her. 
And the message is that God is interested in you. Whatever ways you might count yourself out from being noticed by God, drop it. Because God is interested in you. We have the ugly uh, lead up to today's Old Testament reading. We have a difficult situation where where the saga of Jacob and Joseph, as we have heard the last several weeks, is an unfolding of one deception after another to get what people can get. We heard that it started with in utero with uh, Jacob hanging on to Esau's heel. And that was the reality for the rest of their lives. Jacob finding a way to get what belonged to Esau and to make it his own. And the difficulty roosted in Jacob's life and even in the life of his sons. The favoritism that he showed for Rachel, the favoritism that he showed for Joseph, was a toxic family situation for all the brothers. And there was resentment, and there was jealousy, and there was animosity, and there was even plots for murder. And Joseph was pushed down into the ground, and we thought it just an act of cruelty. But what we find today with this speech of Joseph reuniting with his brothers is that pushing down into the ground was like a dead grain being pushed down into the ground. Unless it dies, it will not bear what it can bear. And so did Joseph come up from that pit and come to a place where he became uh, the Lord of Egypt with respect to how people can live and survive a horrible regional famine and drought, seven years long. And Egypt, because of Joseph and the way God's gift of interpretation of dreams allowed it, became the breadbasket for the entire Mediterranean basin. A gorgeous thing, this reunion. After all of that deception and lying and cheating and stealing comes to this moment where Joseph has finagled his way into seeing his brother whom he'd never seen, Benjamin. But all his brothers are there. And he's still kind of giving them trouble. And then he turns and he says, I am Joseph. I want you to go get our father and get everybody and bring them here and you will be cared for. And then he clears the room. He says, everybody get out. And he talks to his brothers about this. And then he says, come closer. Come closer. They're afraid because they've been through so many lies and deceptions. They wonder what will really happen to them. They come closer. Now they can see the shape of his mouth. 
Now they can see just who he is. And he says that time, not just I am Joseph, but I am your brother. I am Joseph. And at that point, the tears come. And he has to take hold of his brother Benjamin. They share their mother Rachel, but they've never really known each other. And he weeps, and they're on each other's necks. They're hugging and holding on and weeping. And then all the brothers come in, and there's a huddle of love and joy and feelings they haven't felt maybe ever. And all is one. God has made them one. And then we hear, in that moment, can't you hear it? How beautiful it is that brothers live together in unity. Just like the words of our psalm. Oh, how good and how pleasant when brethren live together in unity. And they talk about an ordination of Aaron with the oil. And they talk about the natural scene of the rains coming over the mountains, Mount Hermon, the dew falling upon Zion, and then the last verse of the psalm. For there, in that unity of the brothers, there, the brothers and sisters, there, the Lord has ordained the blessing, life forevermore. So can we do it? Can we see Jesus as an example for our life? Toward godliness? Can we see Jesus as the transformer of our life, the sacrifice for sin that sanctifies us, that deifies us, that pulls us into union with the reality of God? I know we can. So let's see Jesus' example and sacrifice. Amen.